What is objectivity? Uh, I could whip out a Webster's Dictionary defines definition, or I could use plain English. Objectivity means you're not taking one side over another. You're just reporting or representing things the way they are. Objectivity is the first rule of Fight Club in journalism and science. Reporters and researchers believe that by presenting what the data show or what both sides say, we're supplying readers with enough facts to make an informed decision about what's happening in the world. But if we inject our bias into the reporting or research, we become less credible. We're rooting for one team over another. We're favoring the in-group over the out-group or vice versa. This is subjectivity. I could do a show on subjectivity in the media, but that's old news. Literally. Media neutrality is actually a recent development in the history of the printed word. The media barons of the 18th and 19th century regularly used their newspapers as platforms for oiling the political machine. Instead, today's show is about the weaponization of objectivity. Today, sociology and political science ruin objectivity. To dive into this theory, we need to talk about civil society. If the term civil society brings up the image of a Victorian tea room where everyone sits around politely talking about the weather, well, you're not the only one. And you'd be correct, kind of. If the tea room were a regular meeting place for a club of weather enthusiasts, civil society consists of what isn't part of the state, aka the government, or the market, aka businesses. So civil society is made up of non-governmental organizations, clubs, churches, families, etc. It could be argued that the media falls into this category because it serves as a mechanism for holding the state and the market accountable. Although the fact that most newspapers are owned by corporations these days adds a layer of complexity. Okay, so maybe the media is part of the market and civil society, uh, but this is the crux of the weaponization theory. You could say that the media is at its most problematic when it isn't part of civil society. Think state-run media, which is unabashedly subjective, or media that runs entirely on profit, uh, basically Fox News. In 2019, Stephen Klein and Chil Sung Lee published a paper titled Towards a Dynamic Theory of Civil Society, the Politics of Forward and Backward Infiltration. Their argument was that civil society, the state, and the market aren't separate spheres aimed at maintaining autonomy and preventing the encroachment of other spheres. They're actually infiltrating each other. So, using the previous example, state-run or for-profit media, Klein and Lee would call this backwards infiltration, specifically the politics of occupation. You see this in authoritarian regimes where the media becomes the voice of the government, telling everyone that everything is fine, Soylent Green is not people. Oh, okay, nobody under the age of 40 is going to get that reference. Um, how about the government telling everyone that everything's fine and S.H.I.E.L.D. is totally not HYDRA? I understood that reference. Okay, so everything I'm saying so far leads to the conclusion that objectivity is good, subjectivity is bad. An independent media is important, etc., 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 except the politics of occupation isn't the only method of backwards infiltration that the state and market engage in. There's also the politics of influence. According to Klein and Lee, in this framework, civil society is infiltrated or even fully constituted by ideological or hegemonic projects enacted by state institutions that coalesce with the dominant class interests. Yeah, let's break that down word by word. Ideological or hegemonic projects. This could mean political projects such as tax cuts for the wealthy or social projects such as reversing pandemic lockdowns so businesses can reopen. Dominant class interests. 
dominant does not equal the majority. It means those who are in power, those who set the political and cultural agenda. Perhaps an example would help. On May 13th, 2021, the Israeli Defense Forces tweeted, IDF air and ground troops are currently attacking in the Gaza Strip. The media, of course, reported on it because, after all, when the Israeli military reports that a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip has commenced, that's news. But that's not exactly what happened. This clip from NPR's Up First on May 15, 2021, explains the situation. The army told several foreign media outlets, including NPR, that ground troops had entered Gaza. In fact, they had not. Um, the military said it was a communication error, but the Israeli media have widely reported it was part of a ruse to trick Palestinian militants into um, moving underground where Israel then bombed them. So the state influenced civil society to push a message that in this case aligned with military interests, and they use objectivity to do it. Wait, you might say. Isn't the media reporting what the state says without fact-checking an example of subjectivity? Well, even if a reporter in Gaza had said, I don't see any troops, do you think Palestinians would have stayed where they were? The problem stems from objectively reporting what the state or market says when they're lying. Politicians and nation-states using lies to enact agendas isn't a new phenomena, but blatantly lying on social media and then reporters turning around and using those tweets as press releases without fact-checking? That's more recent. To explore this topic a little more, I'm talking with Liz Bent, who is a doctoral student at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. And uh, I'm just really interested to hear about your research focus and uh, what you've been working on. Um, yeah, sure. So right now I'm, I'm mostly working on my dissertation, <laughs> which is actually um, going to be a uh, digital ethnography of Reddit news groups. Um, but my research more broadly focuses on um, a general kind of um, digital information literacy, um, kind of writ large. Um, I'm very interested in the way that, um, especially right now in, in our current climate, we're seeing um, with social media and digital environments, we're seeing a lot of the kind of opportunities for people to express thoughts and opinions and use that kind of mass communication technology that used to be almost exclusively in the hands of professionals. It's now we've got a lot more voices um, able to participate. So um, I'm super interested in how people are using it. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is um, on your bio, you stated that you're really interested in how um, not only the digital aspect, but how the public sees the media. And mm -hmm. I, I read a good paper that you co-wrote on um, press criticism. Part of this is I'm wondering about this trustee model of journalism, which says that, you know, the press acts on our behalf. And the way as a sociologist, I'm trying to make sense of it is, does press fall on the civil society side or does it fall in the market? Because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, let's say the Washington Post puts something out on Amazon uh, you know, even the Columbia Journalism Review said they're pulling their punches on Amazon. So does the trust model still work today? Um, <laughs> it's, that's kind of a funny, we don't know, right? So it's something that's actually always existed in journalism, right? Since, since the penny press, the historical, you know, kind of first time that journalism kind of turned from um, being literally like kind of publications for political parties, right? 
we turned from that to making it more of a kind of a mass kind of consumption model with the penny press. And as we did that, we started seeing the advertising pop in because that was the idea is that you finally had this small printed newspaper that people could read on their commute and it could get out to these mass audiences, right? So it kind of started to create that tension between are we selling papers and selling newspapers to make money um, or is it still that public service? And it's something that, you know, we see that tension even in our students um, at, in journalism schools, that kind of disconnection or connection between the news is, especially right now to these companies that are buying all of these news agencies and then just liquidating them it's insane when you look at like the the local newspapers we had one here in town that so we've got two local newspapers in columbia one is the missourian which is run by the journalism school at, at the university of missouri and the other one is the columbia daily tribune and the columbia daily tribune had always been family owned like since the beginning of the of that newspaper it was owned by this family called the waters it's, well the Last Waters decided he was going to go ahead and sell the newspaper. He sold it to a big national company and it's actually turned over twice now. But the first thing that they did was literally outsource the newsroom. So our local newspaper was being written by people in Austin, Texas. Right. So it in order to kind of like commodify it to make money the way that this big company wanted it to, you take the they took the teeth out of journalism. They took the local out of our newspaper, um, our local, what was supposed to be our local newspaper. So, and we're seeing that just over and over and over again um, right now. So business and money has, since the penny press has always been a part of journalism. Um, ideally, you know, cause I work in a lot in media ethics and in the ideal, what we ought to be and what we ought to be doing. Um, we really still always kind of cling to that idea of, um, and that ideal of what the Commission on the Freedom of the Press first said, that we have this social contract between the citizens and newspapers and journalists. Um, but that social contract is always gonna be complicated by money, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I, I flinched a little when you were talking about the paper being brought up because uh, my, my background is in print journalism. And um, I like to tell friends that pretty much every news organization I've worked for has gone under or been bought out by someone else. So Yeah. 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 And, and ours has, has been bought out twice. I think now Gannett owns it. Maybe I'd have to look at it. But I, I stopped reading it as a local citizen. It just wasn't they had one reporter left who was local. And they had him on every single beat in town. And I don't, just don't know how he could possibly have been covering any of them well. He's kind of a hero to me now. But. <laughs> <laughs> you had mentioned uh, previously, you said something about in, in this, at, at this moment, and there's a lot going on in journalism at this moment. Um, one of the things I was really interested in is this idea of objectivity, kind of working against journalism. 
Um, NPR considered this, did a recent episode just a couple of days ago, really, mm-hmm. where um, they were interviewing various journalists like Leslie Stahl and um, the host, Mary Louise Kelly, said, it's come to the point where now you can print something and it can be accurate and totally false. Accurate and then the sources said it, but false in that none of it really happened. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to think of like a lot of what Trump tweeted as you know, reporters turned around and turned that into news. It kind of like amplifies the message of political actors without, you know, it's not subjectivity or state-run media. And it's more like what I like to think of as like a weaponization of objectivity. Uh, how do journalists protect themselves from that? Because I know that's a huge debate going on right now. Right. I actually have been listening to some interesting um, podcasts recently. There was a really good um, on the media episode that popped up yesterday. I don't know if you've ever listened to anything that Lewis Raven Wallace does, um, where he's talking about the view from somewhere, right? That, um, that, that book and that his, his dismissal from NPR actually started with the fact that he said objectivity is dead and maybe it should never have been right kind of a thing um because it it's it's been weaponized especially like when you consider like job security um some of the things that people are really starting to look at right now is even if you go back and look historically um people who were agitators for for example labor rights for journalists will often be dismissed because they're not objective reporters. So even within the profession itself, we've had situations where objectivity and this ideal of objectivity is used against the reporters who are deemed to have a point of view and an opinion. And frequently, those people who have those points of view and opinions are going to be um, people who come from underrepresented communities, right? Um, because if you, we still kind of have that idea of uh, white cisgendered male being normal and anything else being other, right? I always think about in quantitative coding, we code white cisgendered male as zero and everything else is something, right? I always flip um, it the other way, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, we're coding against that as like the, the standard um and so it's it's weaponized not only just against the individual journalists but then political actors have gotten more and more savvy on the soundbite like i can just think about it like just even in my own just kind of life right all the stories that we heard about um the nixon and kennedy debates even going back like that far right you think about how savvy Kennedy was at using the media and learning those kinds of rules and tricks and ways to get their attention. Um, I think the activity, the, the Twitter, the Twitter, the tweeting (laughs) of Donald Trump was kind of a symptom, right? Of the, the inevitable progression of politicians and not just politicians because other actors have figured it out too um gaining that media savvy and learning how to give that perfect sound bite and give the reporters what they're looking for that you know we always we talk about it as like you're not strategic communicators are not the enemy of journalists but 
they're 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 teaching we're all teaching these kind of we're opening it up to these bad actors who can then just learn what it is we jump on right so there's a hot debate during the, the trump presidency about whether anything that he tweets actually is news and you know new york times <laughs> the the paper of record <laughs> will will tell you that their their thought is anything that the president tweets is news because the president is saying it um and I think even towards the end of his presidency, I think that they even started to seem to kind of doubt their own stance on that, that maybe it's not important for anything that he says to be reported on. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's complicated, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's really complicated. I think that uh, you even stated so in that paper, the electoral reckoning that this idea of advocacy and objectivity, subjectivity, it's its so complicated. Um, yeah. Whenever I think of these issues, um, because uh, my program is public sociology at George Mason, um, I try to think of how do we apply our research to the real world? And I mean, how do we, how, how do you apply your research to the real world? Like that, the paper electoral reckoning, for example, it goes through and looks at um, press criticism. Uh, What's it? The presidential campaign starting from 2000 on. Mm -hmm. And um, once that paper was out, is there some kind of team at your university that communicated the findings? Um, so kind of, Mizzou is in a little bit of a unique position because we have what we call the Mizzou Mafia, which is all of our students and former students and um, instructors and former instructors. We're like this web across the United States. So it kind of is like our own little, its own little mechanism. Um, one thing that we find as academics, though, in journalism is that it's constantly difficult, and especially in the press criticism realm. Um, it's constantly difficult to get journalists to, number one, have the time or number two, have the energy and the motivation to really respond um, to any kind of, you know, valid press criticism, right? So we see, as we found in Electoral Reckonings, we see them kind of repeating this um, processes over and over again. Every four years, we say, we, say, we see the same things and we say, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're doing this again. And then four years later, we find ourselves doing it again, relying too much on polls and maybe they're not the best data and, and right? Um, and, and we need to actually revisit that paper because I'm interested to see if that discourse did change after the Trump presidency and maybe we did pay less attention to polls and maybe we could look at that. Um, but one of the things that, that Wendy Wyatt has always said, um, she's one of the key scholars in um, press criticism theory, is that if press criticism is going to be good and valuable, journalists have to embrace it. And so much of what we do and what we see, I mean, even Columbia Journalism Review is a little too academic sometimes, I think, and they're not reaching that audience. Um, but it's always a matter of is that is the audience willing to listen um so there's some interesting research going on now where people are looking at um comedy news for example as a form of press criticism 
um, because that's something that you can get journalists to pay attention to. They have that, you know, they have that hour a week to look at the Daily Show or John Oliver poking fun at what they've done, right? Even like the little, you know, 45 second or less clips that he does, John Oliver does, where he's putting together all these, you know, morning talk shows talking about Mother's Day or whatever, right? Putting it all back to back like that. That's a form of press criticism that's easily consumed and may actually be reaching journalists a bit more than I think we have a tendency to. The main way that we reach journalists is through our students and training them to be the kind of journalists that we want them to be. But we always risk that kind of setting them up a little bit too much with the ideal. And then they get into the reality and they, why, why, you know? <laughs> the reality is your local newspaper might go under while you're working there. The reality yeah. is you might find yourself in a terrible, complicated situation where, you know, tweets from 10 years ago are used as an example of you lacking objectivity in your current position, right? So it's... Or you end up writing for a website and not getting paid. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Or even your your work is, you are paid to work for a newspaper and then you see your, um, your work being used by others, like to use the John Oliver example again, like John Oliver, who's going out there and, and using the work of all these journalists who are on the ground, you know, doing the investigations and doing the reporting. And then his, he's got a bigger microphone, essentially, to reach a bigger national audience. So, and profiting off of their labor. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, on that positive note, <laughs> journalism, it's not great, <laughs> but, you know, we can make it better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, always. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Um, this is really great to hear your opinion on this. Um, yeah, sure. journalism from the politics of occupation and infiltration. The work being done in the social sciences can help us chart a path forward, but it, it's complicated. One thing is for sure, we need to rethink what objectivity means and how it plays a role in occupation and infiltration by the state and the market. Reflecting on the state of the media and assessing where things aren't working is a start, which is why press criticism is so important to the field. Being critical isn't about shaming people for their actions, it's about looking at the world as it is and saying, we can do better, and here's how. I want to thank my guest Liz Bent for responding to a cold email from a grad student who just wanted to talk about the media for a half an hour. This podcast is also a solo project looking for a team, so for now it is produced and edited by me, Matt Sedlar. The music you're hearing is by Lobo Loco, and at the top of the podcast I played a little mandolin for you. Thanks for listening, and look for a new episode next month where I ruin something else for you. 